Welcome to Creation Training Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, the president of Creation Training Initiative, or CTI. Our mission at CTI is to train up other Christians with the skills and the knowledge to effectively speak and teach about God's creation and biblical apologetics so that they in turn can go out and train this next generation to be able to stand firm on God's Word. Now we've been going through a series on understanding the basics of biblical creation. In our last session, we dealt with the Genesis Flood, and we're going to continue with the Genesis Flood. But I'd like to do a quick recap on what we did the last session. What does the Bible have to say about the flood? Was it a local flood or, or a worldwide flood? And we showed, just using the biblical evidence, that the flood really was a worldwide flood. For example, what was the purpose of the flood? Well, the purpose of the flood was to destroy all mankind except those that were on the ark. Then we looked at the words used to describe the Genesis flood. And we saw words like the earth used many times, indicating it meant the entire earth and not a local portion. We saw terms and phrases such as all flesh, which included totality, not something small. We saw the phrase every living thing under the whole heaven, which again included the entire earth and not a portion of the earth. We saw the word mabul, which is the word, Hebrew word for flood. And that word, it was only used to describe the Genesis flood and no other kind of flood. Then we saw even the New Testament authors believed in the fact of the worldwide flood. We looked at the size of the ark. We saw the ark was huge. It was not some houseboat with giraffe's head sticking out. This was about 450 feet long. Why would the ark have to be small or so large if this was a local flood? Then we looked at the depth of the flood, and the Bible stated the waters covered the highest hills of the mountains by 15 cubits. This could not be a local flood. We saw the duration of the flood was over a year, which indicates this was a huge worldwide flood. Then we looked at population. The population at the time of the flood could have been well over 400 million people. How could a local flood have destroyed 400 million people, including all the animals and the birds? So we saw all these make it clear that the Bible does teach there was a worldwide flood. So now let's go to part two of our Genesis flood, which deals with geology. What do we know about the geology and what we see out there? Well, the evolutionist worldview requires something called long ages for all the physical processes they see out there, such as the high mountains, sedimentation, and large canyons. But the question we're going to ask here today is, are long ages really necessary for what we observe, or is the evolutionist worldview really based on assumptions? So let's do some examination of the evidence. And we will start with looking at Mount St. Helens. The eruption of Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington in May 18, 1980 was one of the most significant geologic events in American history. The total energy output of this eruption was equivalent to 400 million tons of TNT. That's the equivalent of about 20,000 atomic bombs the size of Hiroshima. And Mount St. Helens was a small volcano. Now what were the results of this volcanic eruption? Well, let's talk about canyons. There's a canyon by Mount St. Helens that has been nicknamed the Little Grand Canyon. This is a pretty large canyon. It's about 1 40th the scale model of the Grand Canyon, very deep and long. Now, the question is, how long did it take to make that large canyon? And the answer is one day. 
Now, wait a minute, Mike. How do we know that only took one day? Well, that's very easy. One day it was not there, and the next day it was. In other words, we have observable evidence that large canyons do not require long ages, and they can and do happen rapidly. Then we can look at sedimentation. When we look at the sides of canyon walls, we see these canyon walls are made up of many thin layers of sediments. And the normal explanation we find in the textbooks is each one of these canyons may have taken a season or a year or years to lay down. And if you go by one of these canyons in Mount St. Helens, you would see that it's made up of so many thin layers, you might assume this canyon is thousands of years old, and your answer would be absolutely wrong. You see, these sediments were made up rapidly. As the mud flows came off that volcano, as the pyroclastic flows, the hot gas and ash came down off that mountain, they sorted out the sediments into thin layers rapidly. In other words, long ages are not required for many layers of sedimentation. Now, Mount St. Helens, when we look at the canyons formed rapidly, the sedimentation formed rapidly, it's an opportunity to study not speculation, but observable evidence that clearly indicates long ages are not required. Now, let's go to the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is a spectacular scene out there in the west. It covers about 277 miles in northern Arizona. Now, the main part of the Grand Canyon reaches a depth of over a mile. And at some points, it's 4 to 18 miles in width. And then at the bottom of the Grand Canyon runs the Colorado River. And many evolutionists, most evolutionists believe that the Colorado River formed this Grand Canyon over millions of years. So what I'd like to do though, rather than just accept that as a fact, let's take a look at five different evidences that I believe will demonstrate this canyon was formed rapidly. Evidence number one, no erosion between layers. This is commonly called unconformities. This occurs when we have two contact layers, one on top of the other, that give different ages. In other words, the lower, con the lower layer is one age, and the top layer is a completely different age. Now, how does this happen? There's supposed to be millions of years of time in between these two rock layers. How does this happen? How do we get two layers, one on top of the other, with a vast amount of time that appears to be missing? Well, according to the evolutionists, the, the bottom layer was laid down, and it sat there for millions of years, then the top layer got laid down on top of it. Well, is that a credible story? Not really. Because see, if that was the case, then on the bottom layer, when it was laying out there for millions of years, there should be many signs of erosion and chemical weathering. But the fact is, we do not see the signs of erosion or any chemical weathering. These two layers make a fine contact with no, no erosion in between them. How could this happen? Well, we have to go back to the Genesis flood. The first layer was laid down, and soon after the first layer was laid down, the second layer was laid down, which gives us no time for any erosion. So the fact is, there are really not millions of years of time missing in there. The facts of geology really support this happened one layer on top of the other very fast. Again, a good testimony, the Grand Canyon was formed rapidly. Our second evidence will deal with something called bent strata. Now, rocks, when they bend, tend to crack or break. But in the Grand Canyon, there are several canyons that have very large folded sedimentary layers. Some of these layers are almost 100 feet tall or higher. 
but they're all folded, some almost 90 degrees in a fold. Well, if this took long, slow processes to occur, then there should be many cracks and breaks in that rock layer. But the fact is, there are no cracks or any breaks. What that means is, these had to occur, this, these folds had to occur when the rocks were still soft. And since they're hundreds of feet tall, that means they all had to be laid down at the same time. So there's a second evidence that the Grand Canyon was formed rapidly. Now, third evidence has to deal with fossils. All over the world, we find fossils high above the sea level. We find fossils on mountain ranges all over the world, and we find fossils, seashells, in the Grand Canyon. We're talking 7,000 feet above sea level. And one of the things we notice about these seashells they did not have legs to walk up onto the continents and into the mountains and into the Grand Canyon. So the question is, how did these seashells get in the Grand Canyon? Well, the evolutionist explanation is maybe the continents sank over, overrun by the oceans and came back up, and they sank and came back up. But that is not according to any known science. That is just speculation. Because, you see, the continents are made up of a type of sediment that will float. It will not sink. They're, they're too dense. They're made up of different types of sediments. So therefore, the evolutionist explanation cannot be true since the rocks will not sink the type of sediments. Now, in the Grand Canyon, we find these seashells called nautiloids. These are the long, cigar-shaped seashells. And we find billions of these, that's with a B, billions of these nautiloid fossils all buried in a seven-foot layer of of sediments there. Now, that could not happen by long, slow processes. All those nautilites, all those seashells, had to be buried rapidly in order to produce billions of fossils. Again, a third evidence that clearly demonstrates long ages, long ages are not required, and the Grand Canyon was formed rapidly. Now, fourth evidence deals with a lack of rock fall. The Grand Canyon is made up of large, large cliffs. But over time, massive amounts of rocks and sediments would be expected to have collapsed off these cliffs as they were being created. But the fact is, we don't find that massive amounts of rock fall from the cliffs. Again, another indication the Grand Canyon is very young. Now, a fifth evidence deals with large layers of sediments, large layers of sediments. For example, we find all over the world layers of sediments, like pancake layers, that spanned many continents, indicating these were all laid down at about the same time. For example, there are layers of sandstone and limestone that can be traced almost over the entire continent of the United States and parts of Canada. Now, this means it had to be laid down at about the same time since they're all the same type of sediments. Again, at the same time, meaning a short period of time, not over millions of years. Another example, the chalk beds in England can be traced across England and Europe and even parts of the Middle East. This is a single large deposit that had to be laid down rapidly since it's all the same types of sediments. <clears throat> then in the Coconino sandstone in the Grand Canyon, we have 10,000 cubic miles of sand. This would indicate that they had to be posited by a large amount of water over a short period of time. So there are just five evidences, and there's many more, five evidences that normally don't get taught in our public education system 
that clearly indicate the Grand Canyon could not have been formed by the Colorado River, but was indeed formed by a catastrophic event, the Genesis Flood. So how old is this Grand Canyon? Well, let's look at the, some of the history of the dating of the Grand Canyon. The first dates were given around 70 million years old, and that lasted for 60 years as the fact of the age of the Grand Canyon. Then along comes another group and says, that can't be true. It can only be about five to six million years old. Well, now we have a great discrepancy. Some more dates were taken, and they ranged from maybe 17 million years old to 55 to 65 million years old. And then in 2008, in the Geology Journal, there was a claim made that it was, again, only about 6 million years old. Well, how old is it? There seems to be a lot of confusion in the evolutionist testimonies. How about this, for example? How about this for an explanation? How about the Grand Canyon is only about 4,500 years old and was actually formed as a result of the Genesis Flood because that seemed to match the facts that we observe out there. Well, let's talk about some other canyons besides the Grand Canyon. There's a canyon called the Burlingame Canyon located in Walla Walla, Washington. Now, it's a small analogy here to a Grand Canyon. This canyon was carved in six days. This canyon was carved in just six days. How big is it? It measures 1,500 feet long and 120 feet deep. Rapid moving water carved this canyon out in just six days. In other words, Long ages are not necessary for what we observe out there. Then we go to Washington again, Palouse Falls Gorge in Washington, eastern Washington. There's a whole series of deep canyons, hundreds of feet deep, carved through solid rock. How could this have been formed? Well, we believe, and there's great evidence to support, that it was formed rapidly. We know at one point in time there was a lake called Lake Missoula. It was a large lake in western Montana that existed at the peak of the Ice Age. And we can see how on the sides of the mountain walls there how high this water got. Now the water rose to a level of about 2,000 feet. This is a large lake, about three times the volume of Lake Erie. Now that lake is really not there anymore, so something happened. We can see the lake was there by the sediments on the sides of the mountains. So what happened to it? Well, we believe there was a dam made by glaciers holding this lake back. And when that dam broke, large amounts of water. Now remember, we're talking this lake is about 2,000 feet deep. Rushed through Idaho and eastern Washington, carving the scablands. What we call the scablands are the large canyons through solid rock rapidly. So again, another example that long ages are not necessary. Then we go to Canyon Lake Gorge in Texas. When the dam overflowed this, this area, it took just three days. That's again, just three days to carve out this large canyon, which is one and a half miles long and 80 feet deep. Again and again, we see the evidence. Long ages are not required, what we see out there. Well, how about mountains? Let's take mountains. How long did it take to get all these huge mountains? Well, when we examine the evidence, the type of sediments and fossils found on these major mountains, it's such as the mountain ranges, the Rockies, the Andes, the Himalayas, and the, and the Appalachians, the type of sediments and the fossils we found, find there clearly indicate there was a rapid mountain uplifting not too long ago. Now, how do large mountains form? 
We believe during the Genesis flood. Now, this is not a tranquil flood. This is a violent flood because it says the springs of the deep burst forth. And we have these large continents moving back and forth, shifting back and forth, and colliding, sometimes causing mountain uplifting like this when two landmasses move together. Or maybe one goes underneath the other, subduction, causing one landmass to go up high like this. All this would have been happening during the Genesis flood and after the Genesis flood. Rapid mountain uplifting. So again, long ages are not necessary for what we see out there. Now let me read a quote to you. This comes from a geologist. This comes from American scientist Dr. Elderly, former president of the American Geological Institute. And he says this, I quote, The internal structure of mountains is fairly understood. And the erosional processes that fashion the details of their outward appearances are no longer mysteries. But then he goes on to say this, Yet the cause of the deformation of the Earth's outer layers and the consequent building of mountains still effectively evades an explanation. So they really don't have a good explanation how these mountains could have occurred over long ages. But you know, the best explanation is the Genesis Flood. Now, are long ages really necessary? Well, we've seen that they're not necessary for making great large canyons. They're not necessary for sedimentation. They're not necessary for mountain uplifting. How about some other examples? How about oil? Well, let me read to you a quote about oil. A study in the Journal of the Petroleum Exploration Society of Australia in 1996 made this statement. Bottom line, economic accumulations of oil and natural gas can be generated, get this now, in thousands of years in sedimentary basins that are, have experienced hot fluid flow or heat. In other words, naturally, without any interference, oil can be made in thousands of years and doesn't take millions of years. Now, in the laboratory, let's take a look at oil in the laboratory, and I quote, the technology described as one that mimics nature produces oil in much the same way that nature produces oil, but it is completed in around 30 minutes instead of millions of years. Long ages are not necessary for what we observe out there. Wood, we can take wood and we use the right chemicals, create petrified wood in one week. Long ages are not necessary there. Stalactites, those are the ones that hang from the top of the caves, the stalactites, normally taught millions of years, but we've actually observed stalactites to grow over an inch a year for over 10 years. Again, long ages are not necessary. Coal, what about coal? Well, in laboratories, we can see coal made in a matter of weeks. Let me talk more about coal. And we're gonna do this using something called polystrate fossils. Polystrate fossils, now what are those? Well, poly means many, straight strata, many strata. What we're talking about here are tree fossils that spanning many seams of strata. And I want to talk about specifically ones we find in coal beds. For example, we're finding these polystrate fossils, tree fossils, that span many seams of coal. Now, here's a problem. According to evolutionists, coal takes millions of years to form. Now, if coal really did take millions of years to form, none of those tree fossils would still be there. They would have all decayed in a matter of years. Well, how is coal made, according to evolutionists? Well, we're supposed to start with 
swamp vegetation. Then over long periods of time, the swamp vegetation decays, mixed with other minerals and elements, and slowly turns into peat. Then over more long periods of time, this peat slowly hardens and turns into coal. There's only one problem with that. That's never been observed. See, we find these tree fossils in the coal beds. And one of the interesting things we find about these tree fossils in the coal beds, they didn't grow there. We look at the root ends of these, and they've all been broken off. So how did these tree fossils that span many seams of coal get there? Well, we can go back to Mount St. Helens. That eruption occurred in the state of Washington on May 18, 1980. When that eruption occurred, it was a huge blast. Many, many miles of forest were blown down. At the end of the eruption, millions and millions of trees have been blown down. And many of these trees were blown into the lake at Mount St. Helens called Spirit Lake. And they had a log mat floating in that lake of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of trees. Then some of them started bobbing up and down in the lake like this. Then they gradually started sinking down into the bottom of the lake. And some scientists decided they would go down and observe what was taking place at the bottom of that lake. And what they observed was this. The bark had fallen off those trees and mixed with other elements. And in less than 20 years, we already have a thick layer of peat at the bottom of that lake. It did not take hundreds of thousands of years. It took 20 years. Now, if another eruption was to occur and we got the right heating conditions at the bottom of that lake, within about 50 years, we could have a thick coal bed. And guess what would be in that coal bed? Trees that did not grow there. Just like we see all over the world, Again, a testimony to a worldwide catastrophic event called the Genesis Flood. Well, let's bring this to a conclusion. The evidence, the evidence supports that long ages are not necessary. That means in our education system, if we really want to give good education, we need to be teaching just that, that just long ages are not required. Things can happen rapidly. You see, the Bible also teaches that there was a worldwide flood. Then it occurred about 45 to 4,600 years ago. And that is the result for what we see out there today, the large mountains, the large canyons, the sedimentation. But again, any school teaching or any professor teaching only long ages is really not educating anymore, are they? What they're trying to do is indoctrinate our students when we know, as a fact, long ages are not required. But we also must remember that evidence does not necessarily convince someone of the truth. The issue, therefore, is not about evidence. It's a worldview. It's really a worldview, our starting point. As Christians, our worldview begins with God's Word. And it starts with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And Genesis 1 also teaches very clearly that God created everything in six literal days, just thousands of years ago. And our worldview teaches in Genesis 6 through 9 that there really was a worldwide flood. And it killed all of mankind except Noah and his family, eight people that were on that ark. And our worldview is that God is indeed the creator of all things. And we see that throughout the entire Bible. Colossians 1.16, God is the creator of all things. That is the Christian worldview. But the evolutionists have a different worldview. They have a different starting point. Their starting point is not in the beginning God created. Their starting point is naturalism, which requires millions and billions of years for all the events and features we see out there today.
and that there was no worldwide flood. Well, Peter, in his second letter, really describes what we're observing today and what we're hearing today. Let me read to you 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. And he states, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were before the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world then, that then existed, perished, being flooded with water. Right there, 2 Peter 3 8 tells us that people will just reject the truth, and they reject it because they do not have the same starting point in the beginning God created. Now, 2 Timothy 4, 3, 4, 4, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. This is a great scripture that teaches that people will ignore the truth. They will ignore the evidence right in front of them. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 states, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Notice that they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure truth. But after their own lush, so they heap themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned onto fables. That sounds like a very good description today of the teaching of evolution. But you know, all those people have no excuse for not believing in a creator. No matter how much they attempt to ignore the evidence, they still do not have an excuse. Because Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, no one who's ever lived has an excuse for not believing in a creator God. As we read these words, Romans 1, 19 and 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the images that are the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Thank you, and may God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear.